Right, morning. Hi everyone. I'm Andy. I'm one of the elders here. Great to have you with us. I know lots and lots of people are away at the moment, but I'm sure hi guys on Zoom and those will be watching this afterwards. I have no idea what's going to happen. By the way, this preach was finished at two o'clock this morning and rewritten at 6.30 this morning and then rewritten again about two minutes before this preach began. So, uh, this, sorry, the service began. So who knows what's going to happen? Um, but I'm totally and utterly reliant on the Holy Spirit to do a work today. Because no matter what, if I wrote the best preach ever, and it's not, by the way, just to be clear, if I wrote the best preach ever, it's still just a TED talk unless the Holy Spirit moves. And it's Pentecost Sunday, so I pray he moves in this because we're in a big chunk of Scripture. But let me, uh, let me ask you a question. Let me see if I've got control. Yes, I do. Uh, whoops. Is it not going back one? Let's jump. It's a little bit tricky for me. We've had lots of tech challenges today. Okay. That is definitely... Not the slide I expected. Don't worry about it. See? Need the Holy Spirit with us now. Right. So um, put your heads into social media. Okay. Facebook, Twitter, Insta. I hear Facebook is now, what is it called now? Meta, is it? What on earth? Go. What is going on there? Uh, think about social media. Think about all the, I want you to, I'm going to ask you to apply some mental filters here to this now, right? Okay. So um, I'm going to ask you a question. Um, Think about the major things that people that you know, Christian people, by the way, have posted in the last year. Think about what they posted in relate, and think about these subjects: new job slash career progress, great exam results, new baby, engagement, marriage, anniversary, new home, new car. Think of all those ones, right? Now, as you picture them in your mind and pick one or two out in your head. I bet they're like celebrating, thank God for the blessing of God that I have this. If they were trying to sort of give God credit for it, they would say, amazing, thank you God for this incredible blessing of these things. Before I apply the next filter, please be aware that praise God from whom all blessings flow, amen? Like if you've got a blessing in your life and you feel God has given that to you, praise God, wonderful, amazing that that is. Now apply this filter and see if you can think of one who posted something like this, life really sucks right now. It's really tough. I'm opposed on every turn. Nothing is going right, but I press on towards the goal. I have none in my head. Maybe one, maybe two. Congratulations. But 99% will be, God's blessing me because things are going great. Not God's blessing me when things are really suck and tough and hard to do. I think one of the biggest issues facing Christians, oh, is me falling over on my dodgy, I busted my knee yesterday, by the way, so if that happens again, pick me up, stand me up, I'll keep going. Um, one of the biggest issues I think facing the church today, and it troubled me as I started to look at this section we're going to do of scripture soon, is we think when things are going well, that's when God's with us. And when things are going tough, when things are going bad, it must be wrong. Let me choose another path. The path of least resistance. The path where things are going. And then suddenly things are going when you think, well, God must be in this now because everything's just going exactly as I wanted it. It can't be God's plan because it's too hard. My concern with that path of least resistance is that leaks into the church. And then the church won't press forward anymore because that's not the path of least resistance. Because in a church going for God that really wants to preach the gospel, that wants to serve a town and love a community and tell them about Jesus, that is not the path of least resistance. 
The path of the least resistance is compliance. Everything's equal. Everyone can do what they like. It doesn't matter. Sin away. As long as it's not too bad, you'll be fine. That's the path of least resistance in our culture. And if we have that culture, we have that idea that opposition and, and challenge must mean it's wrong. We'll have to go this way. We're a social club. And we won't be here in five years' time. We'll be over if that's what church is. You're going to see it in Nehemiah, that doing the work of God puts us directly in the sights of an enemy that wants to oppose our work. There's a quote, I've quoted it many times, and it's going to get another airing from Usual Suspects, great film. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled is to convince people he doesn't exist. The greatest trick he ever pulled was to convince people that he doesn't exist. I.e., if things are going wrong, it's because I'm going in the wrong path. Not that there's an enemy pushing against me. If the church is struggling, it's not because the enemy's pushing, it's because that church isn't set up correctly. We blame human behavior when, in fact, we have an enemy. We have an enemy. We have a God who is greater, of course. And, rem- and, and this is tricky, so someone may quote me, and this will end up being a bad thing, but Satan is not against you as a human being. He's against you when you do the things of God. He's against you when you press in for the things of God. He's against you when you show love and concern and compassion for people you don't know because that's reflecting God. He doesn't want you doing that. He doesn't want you praying. doesn't want you loving. doesn't want you caring. doesn't want the church doing anything. If the church stays quiet and passive and is a social club, the enemy will go somewhere else. He's got better things to do than bother with a bunch of people who are lukewarm doing nothing. But when you push, when you press, then you get resistance when you do what God has commanded you. And that is true of the church, and that's true of us as individuals. Let's never think, and I'm really glad we changed the words that song in a way, I'm going to talk about the church, us. The you is us, but also this affects us as individuals because the church is made up of living stones and we're those. Okay. So, didn't Rachel do a great job last week, by the way? Really great job. If you weren't here, she's one of our LST students. She, she, I think, was that her first public preach? Certainly in a big church setting, I think. Anyway, great job. Really good. And she helped sort of lay down some foundations and show us that God's people are individually gifted but corporately unified. Like you've got individual gifting. Everyone in this room is different. But God calls us to something in unity. It's so powerful and amazing when people come together. We're all different. We're all gifted. But together... Unified in purpose is the main thing. She read the whole chapter beautifully, by the way, if you heard her, pronouncing all those names. I have three chapters today, so sit back. No, I'm not going to read them all because that would take most of my preach, and that's a cop-out for any preacher. I can fill 30 minutes, 20 minutes, I'll be reading the Bible. But I'm going to push into the Bible. We are going to do some Bible exploration today. and I'm going to read through chunks of Nehemiah 4 um, to 7. 4, so 4, 1 to 7, 4. So that's what I'm going to be doing about. But let me just put some foundations down. And this is correct. So I've got some of my slides correct. It was very late, all right? Um, So let's just try and agree something. If you've been tracking with us and with us through Nehemiah and the series of Ezra and Nehemiah, let's just agree. Nehemiah is leading a people in doing the work of God. We agree that that's what he's doing. He's, he said, God's called us to do this, to rebuild these walls, and he's leading a people to do that. That's important, okay? The walls are defensive. They're a defense system, and they're also broken, destroyed. A hundred years old, rubble and rubbish just laying on the ground. So you have to picture in your mind sometimes looking at those walls. It's just rubble, destroyed. It even says in the scripture, full of rubbish. 
because after 100 years, what do you think is going to happen to a pile of bricks? It's just everyone's going to throw junk in it. It's just going to become an absolute mess. If we think about Nehemiah 1 and 2, we've already said God stirred Nehemiah himself to do something about this. And then he set things up with the king that was going to allow him to do it. Gave him legal and financial support to do what he was asked to do. So it's going really well. It's a great start. And then as Rachel showed us last week, everyone starts to get together and everyone gets given jobs. And it's a really, really great start. Everything seems to be set up for success. Hold that thought. I'm going to come back to it. What is God? This, this is back then, okay? This is, this is back in the time of Nehemiah. What's God building today? It's in Scripture. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God is building. He, he called a building then, build these walls. Today, Scripture says, I will build my church. God is still building things, building the church. Uh, Matthew 16, 18 there we go. So this, and I tell you, this is Jesus, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Or 1 Peter 2, 4 to 5. As you come to him, Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house uh, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are built up into this spiritual house, living stones. I um, invited some uh, Afghan friends, you might have been here, to come to church, and what they thought they were coming to was completely different to what they experienced. I kept saying to them, please be aware, there's no steeple. This isn't like, you know, St. Paul's. This is a, this is a, a the, I kept saying to them, the church is us. Wherever we would be, we would be the church. It doesn't matter if we're in the car park or in the building. And they're still looking at me. And when they come, they still said, well, I wasn't expecting that. You know, the school. I said, because it doesn't, you know, if I wanted to show them the church, I'd say, turn around, look, there they are. All these living stones make the church. So keep that throughout what I bring today, because when we look at Nehemiah, we're going to look at building. What's God building today? How does we learn lessons from Nehemiah? Because they have had a great start, and then this happens. Opposition number one. So straight after what was brought, um, we have the first opposition. And I would call this, and my titles might not be quite right, but like psychological opposition. So that everything's set up, they seem to be going for it. Like think of the ministries that sometimes get started in a church and the things that churches want to do. And generally speaking, there's momentum, there's energy, there's people, there's excitement, and everything seems to be in place. And you call people and boom, we just go. This is true of Nehemiah, okay, this story. Everyone's like, look, the list from last week. Everyone's just standing there going, we're ready, we're starting to build, build, build. And then comes the opposition. And the first one is psychological. It says this in Nehemiah 4, 1 to 3. When Sambalat heard that we were building the wall, he became angry and was greatly irritated. And he mocked the Jews, the guys building the wall. He spoke before his relatives and the army of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they fortifying themselves? Will they make sacrifices? Can they complete this in a day? Can they revive the burned up stones out of the rubbish heaps? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, even what are they rebuilding? Even if a fox climbed on it, that would break down their stone wall. It's, 
it's, these are regional governors, so Sambalat and Tobiah, and they're the first to offer, offer opposition, and they do it by mocking, by laughing, by making very weak, they're, they're, those are jokes, by the way, that's why I was laughing, they think they, they're funny. The feeble nature of the people, the feeble nature of this organization, the feeble nature of the materials they're trying to use, that will they make sacrifices. It's like, what are they going to do? Pray a wall up? Is that what they're going to do? Pray a wall up? As if that's going to happen. Come on. That's what it's like. They're just mocking them for like, you think that you're going to build something significant. You are nothing. And the materials you have are rubbish. And anything you do, it'll just collapse. God's building his church today. And society's going, you? You are? You're gonna, what are you going to do? Pray it up? Are you going to revive the nation? Are you, gonna, are you, you with what you've got? You're going to do that, are you? They're trying to destroy your confidence. Society, back then, this is society. You've got to see it in there a little bit. It says, you know, it says, his relatives and the army of Samaria. They're doing it in front of a crowd. They're mocking them, saying, these guys, you wouldn't believe what they think they're going to do. They think they're going to build a wall. And look at them. They're trying to get inside their heads. Make them doubt. Make them not sure what's going to happen. They become the butt of the local jokes. Now, I don't know if you've been to a comedy club recently. Half the time I have to walk out. Because at some point, someone starts mocking the church, laughing at Christians, saying we don't know what we're doing, always picking on the negatives of something that's gone on in the news, never conscious of what's going on behind the scenes. We just become the butt of jokes. But we're not alone. It's happened to these guys too. You do know this is heading in a positive direction at the end. Please be assured of that. But we're going to stay here for a while. Think of today. Think of Ricky Gervais. who used to love in the office. Some of the things he says about our faith is so disrespectful to any person who believes anything. He just keeps laughing. And occasionally he says something that tries to counteract his mockery of us, but then he'll do something again. Dawkins said, believing in Jesus is like believing in the tooth fairy. That's what he said about us. We just, we like believe in the tooth fairy. Like the savior of the world is compared to someone who gives a pound or whatever it is today with interest for teeth. That's what, and people laughed with him. They went, you're right, like this just like the tooth fairy. Nothing like the tooth fairy, but trying to get inside our heads. Make us think, you, you believe a lot of nonsense. This psychological attack in Nehemiah was to try and get them to wobble, to feel out of sorts with the majority, not lined up with culture and start to become discouraged. And if they became discouraged, the main reason they were doing this was not just to discourage them, to stop them working, to stop them building. That's the purpose of the mockery. It's that they don't want that wall built. So their mockery is not for the fun of just taking the mickey out of people. It's to say, if we get them insecure enough, they'll stop working. David uh, Guzik, in his uh, he's got a very good website that sort of explores certain scriptures, and, and uh, he wrote this. Discouragement is such a powerful weapon because it is somewhat the opposite of faith. Where faith believes God and his love and his promises, discouragement looks for and believes the worst and tends to pretty much forget about who God is and what he has promised to do. But let's not be discouraged. Let's not be discouraged. Nehemiah responds in verse 4 with a pattern you're going to see a few times occur again and again. He says this, Hear, O God, we are that we are despised. 
turn their reproach back upon their own head and give them as spoils in the land of captivity. No longer cover their iniquity or block out their sin, which is before you, since they have made insults against the builders. So we rebuilt the wall until all of it was solidified up to half its height. The people had passion for the work. That bit there at the front is God just is, is Nehemiah just saying, God, I'm praying that problem up to you. It's not true. The mockery is, you know, not true. It's not right about us. But I'm not going to get chewed up fighting these pointless arguments, these pointless battles with the Ricky Gervaises of the world and the comedians in every club want to laugh at us and every Facebook post about Christian is pretty much a joke. Father God, you deal with that. I'm just getting on with the work because I believe you will see this through to completion. He didn't argue, he just prayed. And then it says the enthusiasm returns, the passion for the work returns, and they keep going. He just says, to God, we keep going. So Nehemiah believes in the promises of God before he leave, believes in the mouths of those that oppose it. He believes in the promises of God before he believes what comes out of the mouths of those that oppose it. And then chapter 4 goes on, it just is discouragement. They don't stop, they don't give up after one go, trust me, they keep going. It says in verse 8, they all conspire together to fight against Jerusalem in order, in order to cause chaos. They want to strike fear into them, fear of actually being attacked physically, perhaps then nowadays, perhaps just by abuse online, being mocked in public, having your profile. You know, people say you're a whatever phobic because you spoke out something you thought was helpful or truthful. This is all to strike fear into them, fear of being attacked directly. And then Nehemiah does it again. Okay? Nevertheless, we prayed to our God. Because of them, we set a watch for them day and night. We'll come back to that because that's part two of his pattern. The rest of chapter four is just repeated different attempts to keep discouraging them. But he stands firm, Nehemiah, because he holds on to the principle, if God said this will happen, it will happen. And I'm giving this up to you, God, because they seem to be opposing us. You said this is going to be done. Over to you. We're keeping working. The next opposition, I think, could be, I'll put it in practical opposition. Chapter 5, they try a new form of attack. This is the practical attack. Also, I didn't want to do it today particularly because it's a big topic, the physical attack, the, the weariness that comes. But also there's this area of practical attack that starts in Nehemiah 5, 1 to 4. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and, their, and of, of their wives against their Jewish brothers. So this is within now, this is, so what was happening before was outside. Now it's inside the group. Inside them, there's, there's upset coming, and there's a whole different preach there on unity, but, but I want to stick to the practical um, problem here. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. So I said the subtext here is one about disunity. Like there's a falling out amongst them because people have been lending people money and charging huge interest, urseries. It's like literally marking it up and making profit out of each other. But the point is that again, why? To stop the work. This attack is to stop the work. And it's a realization that financial worry, practical financial worry, is extremely distressing. True? When we worry about money, we suddenly hit like almost a panic inertia. 
can't do anything. I, can't, I have to think about constantly where money's coming from. And it's a great tactic to get us so distracted that we think we're going to end up destitute. We've got this picture in our minds that we can't quite push out of our heads that I'm going to end up homeless at the end of this. This, this is where it's going. This is going to end up in a disaster for me. And once that's in our minds, once we think we're on this path of somehow destitution, we slow down and we stop to work. And yet it says this in Scripture. Matthew 6, 25 to 26. Therefore I tell you, Jesus says, do not worry about your life, what you may eat, what you will eat or drink, or about your body or what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Thus says the Lord. God says this. God says you will not reach a point of desperation. And you will not. You will not. Because God says that's the truth. You may find yourself in financial difficulty, and I'll talk about some of that in a minute, and you're not going to like me very much. But my point is this. No one in this family, this church, will end up without food or clothes unless your pride stops you from saying, I need some help. Because that's what God built us into. You will not be unable to feed yourself. You will not be unable to clothe yourself because you're part of a family that God placed you in, and therefore that's the unity that we will give. We need to live in the truth of that promise, otherwise we'll struggle to do the work, and the work is to build his church. Building his church means getting involved, not just on Sundays, sharing the gospel, caring for the lost, looking out for the poor. The church is an agency of change and love for the community we're placed in, all the things the church will do, but if we get distracted by multiple things of opposition, that doesn't happen. And God wants to build his church. Not just to be a place to hang out, but to do amazing things on his behalf. Amen? Ready for the I wish you wouldn't say this Andy moment? I've been told never to apologize anymore, so I'm not going to, Jim. I'm just going to tell it straight. One of the traps we can fall to is the tactic of the enemy to detach the spiritual impact of our decisions about our finances, to detach them. But this is not to do with God. The decisions we make about what we're going to do with our money, what we're going to do with our careers, the sorts of things we go on, that's something else that's not to do with spiritual stuff. David Guzik says this, we sometimes want to separate what we do with our money from the walk, our walk with God. This is a huge deception from Satan. Buying a house is a spiritual decision, not just a financial one. Taking a job, choosing a career, deciding how much money you should make, all these matters that will directly affect your walk with God, both now and in the future. If we don't handle our money with the right heart and make financial decisions with an eye to eternity, we can make the mistakes that will affect the work of God in our lives for years and years. That's pretty like in your face, right? You make decisions that impact your ability to do the things of God. And we have choices. And these are difficult because we're in a society and a culture that says, well, you should, you should pretty much have all things eventually. If you work hard enough and you save enough and you save maybe, you'll end up there. 
and there's this constant sense of, well, it's there, it's there, work of God, it's there. There are better paid jobs out there. There's more work available to me if I want to go and get it. There's more work for me. I run my own company. I could really churn in a load of work, but I have to make decisions. What would that actually mean? And I know what it would mean. Less time with God. Less time with you. Less time serving. There's cheaper houses if you want to move. In fact, Watford, I think it's probably one of the most expensive, there's cheaper houses everywhere. I mean, come on, this is a crazy place for house prices. All those decisions have to be asked with the question, is this part of what God has called me to do? And that's a question we sometimes don't want to hear the answer to. Like, la, 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 la. Is this work of God? Hmm? Nothing must be fine then. The question we also want to decide is, if that is what I feel God has called me to, how does that work inside the building of the church and the work God has called me to? Because if it doesn't fit... If it doesn't fit, say, well, we do that, and then you realize, and this is what the point he was making, we made decisions, then we think, mm. we've got to pray. Is that the right thing to do inside of the work of God? What he's called us to, me to, us to, the church to, is that fitting in there? Or is that just our decision? And if it's just our decision, you've just done exactly what Guzek says. You've detached the spiritual point from the decisions you're making. And these are huge. They are huge. In our culture, in our society, the biggest decisions seem to be financial now. And we're all under financial pressure. Trust me, so are we. Everything's just shooting through the roof. And if you see my house, yes, I'm blessed with a big house. It costs a fortune to run electricity in that place. I won't tell you how much. You'd pass out how much it costs because of its old wiring. And that was a year ago. Now we're standing watching that meter going, oh my word, <laughs> it's gone up every day. If we make decisions around moving house, if we make a decision we can't do this anymore, has to be that it lines up with the will of God for our lives. What follows is just is that Nehemiah prays and then decides what to change. But this doesn't fit because there's an issue for Nehemiah that you may not have spotted if you look at the scripture. Well, the first thing he does is he gets the leaders within the Jewish community to say, what you're doing is not actually biblical. You need to stop that, making money out of each other. Stop it. He just literally says, it's not right, it's not biblical. It's against the commandment to make money out of people in poverty. He says, stop that in verse 9. So I said, the thing that you were doing... Never mind, I'll read from here. The thing you were doing is not good. Return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses and percentages of money, grain, wine, all that you've been extracting from, like, that has to stop. So that's the first thing he does. He takes action against it. But he does this other thing, which is the bit that we can miss. And I wonder if it is there. No. I'll read it out to you. This is uh, 5.10. Moreover, I, Nehemiah, and my brothers and my servants are lending money and grain. Let's abandon that. And the exacting of interest. He realizes he has to change his own arrangement because it's not right. It doesn't fit in with the will of God. So he has to say, I'm going to change. So he would have benefited a lot here. Like grain, everything was given to him. And they were, they were also lending it to others because they had access to things. And they were making money. He said, that's the stop. That's not right. It doesn't fit in because it's causing concern and worry. So he changes his own financial situation. 
The third opposition is personal opposition. Character, chapter 6 is a bit different. Um, the enemy of Nehemiah and the Jews tries this new tactic. He actually just goes after Nehemiah himself. The person, personally, starts to personally oppose him. And while it's, that's important, that it's, he's a leader, we need to think about how that affects all of us. So verse 2 uh, says this. Sambalat and Geshem, Geshem's another leader, sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at, at that place. Hapeferin. Hapeferin. In the plain of Ono. I can say Ono. But they intended to do me harm. Most believe they actually wanted to get Nehemiah just away. Like, hey, mate, come on, mate. Let's just go over here and have a chat. Now, some think they might have planned evil things for him. Others think they're just trying to get him off site, away from the work. But they've been two-faced. All of the attempts at first are like, hey, man, come on, come on over here. Let's just, let's just chat about some other stuff and get him away from the work. He says, no way, not doing it, not interested. Refuses. So they up the ante and they try to gossip and spread rumors about him because they want people to start to doubt him, doubt who he is, doubt what he's even about. They write what it says in the scripture, an unsealed letter. Now that might be like, so what? The important thing of an unsealed letter is everyone and anyone's allowed to read it. If it's sealed, you're not has to go to the person it's for. If it's unsealed, you can read it if you like. So they write this unsealed letter. And then it says this. It is reported amongst the nations. That means everyone's saying. You ever had one of those conversations? Listen, everyone's saying this about you. Not, don't want to upset you, but everyone is saying this stuff. You want something that rubs a bit? Had that in the church. And you listen, everyone's upset about it. Right, who's everyone? And what are you trying to do? You're just trying to destroy me by that. It means that I feel now like everyone is against me because of something I said in a preach or something. Turns out like when you really dig it, it's like three people. But it's the point of like everyone saying it. That's what they're doing here. They're saying, it's reported amongst the nation, like everyone's saying it, everyone's saying it. And Geshem, he also says it, by the way, him, he says it, he's a leader. He said it as well. Everyone's saying that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That's why you're building that wall. And according to these reports, you want to be their king. None of this is true, but it's enough to get people going, hmm, hang on, what's he all about? That was the attempt there. It's not true. It's a lie, but it's enough to kind of put that gossipy, negative thing floating around inside the church. Now their leaders are discredited. And that doesn't have to be a leader. It can be you. Everyone's saying this about you. Everyone's saying that about you. Lots of people have maybe given me a comment. That, that sort of stuff is really destructive. It's not true. And this is what happens. Now when I went to the house of Shehemiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. Isn't that nice? No, it's not. It's a stitch up. He's not a priest, Nehemiah. If he goes into that temple, that's bad news. He's broken like his covenants. He's broken the arrangement. He's not as good as he thinks he is, not following the rules. So it's an attempt to make him fall. It's an attempt to make him go, you do that. Because the mummy did it. It would be like, hi, he's in the temple. Look, there he is. There's your leader breaking the covenant laws. 
in a temple. Doesn't matter whether you agree with this or not. The point is, it was just something to expose him by. It was another attempt. They wanted him to compromise himself publicly, shame himself publicly, discredit him as a leader, as one who knew the word of God and lived in it. That threefold attack, that threefold attack, friend, false friendship, two faces, falsehoods, trying to get him to compromise, all fail on Nehemiah. Praise God for Nehemiah. They fail on him. They try desperately. These are the sorts of things that will come at you. These are the sorts of things that will come at us. Please, God, let them fail. Amen? The enemy knows how powerful it is to attack people who are either in leadership or people that you respect, especially within the church. You've got to be careful how you build people up. Because the person you need to rely on is Jesus. The word you need to rely on is written in the Bible. And if someone is a friend of yours and they're someone who backs up all that stuff, it means if they don't quite go, I've still got, I'm still rooted in the Bible, not rooted in them. There's been too much of this recently. Attacking those in leadership because the enemy knows pulling them down pulls down the hundreds, if not thousands of people. Mark Driscoll, Mars Hill. You know that church. Gone. Pulled him right down. Gone in two months. The entire church, 35,000 people attended Mars Hill. Gone in two months. Ravi Zacchaeus. Amazing apologist. I used to watch him all the time. Satan pulls him down. We can go, Ravi, Ravi, Satan, Satan. Like, get him, pull him down. Now everyone, his YouTube, no one wants to watch him anymore. He was incredible to listen to. David. Remember? Bathsheba. Enemy goes after people. Hillsong's in trouble. Carl Lenz. Even these days, Brian Houston. You can say, what are they doing? Opposition comes against. We need to pray for these people and pray for your leaders and pray for me and Aaron and pray for anyone you know in leadership and pray for those people that you look to as people who are guiding you and helping you in life. Pray that the enemy doesn't get them either because take them down, take you down with them. That's the tactic. Nehemiah resisted. And this is what I think is a secret overarching theme. Thankfully, we've got here the positives of what we're seeing in Nehemiah. Firstly, he expects opposition. He expects it. He's like, he's alert for it. The Bible says, stay alert. Like, be aware. You are going to come against opposition if you're going to try and do the things of God. Be ready, be awake, be alert. He saw it coming. He was under no illusion that there was going to be resistance. Are we? There's a question. He used the weapon of prayer, like, real quick. And because of who he was, that, that prayer would be biblically based. He would use the word and prayer like, as a, like a reflex action. There it comes, praying it out. That was his first response. Like right after the latest attacks in... <laughs> right after the latest attacks in chapter 6, he prays this in verse 14. He says this. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also to the prophetess Neodiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Like all that stuff that comes against him in six, that's all he says. That's all he says, just says, like, remember them. You know what that means, right? Like, don't forget what they did. Now moving on, I'm pressing on. That's it. His prayers are short. He just says, remember, and then he gets back to the work. So let me catch that final point in my closure. 
going to skip back all the way to chapter 3. At first attack, they come, the mocking attack. And this is what happens after Nehemiah prays. He says this. Half of my servants did the work while the other half handled this, the spears, shields, bows, body armor. Those rebuilding the wall and those hauling the loads were working with one hand doing the task and the other holding a weapon. For the builders, everyone had the sword bound to his side even while rebuilding. He also goes on later and says, we put trumpets on certain positions around the wall to say if there's any attack or any problem, sound the trumpet and we'll rush to your aid. So there's all this kind of responsiveness going on. And as one person once said uh, this, they said, those called to do the work of God do it with a sword and a shovel. Like a sword, like the sword, the word itself and prayer against the shovel of the work. God needs us to have a shovel too. You got the sword, use it. But don't forget you've got a shovel as well. Now this doesn't sound right, but you know what I mean? Prayer is not enough. Prayer without work, faith without works is dead territory, yeah? I can pray and pray and pray and pray, but if I don't do anything, I've got, I've got a sword and no shovel. Prayer is a weapon to be used against discouragement, but discouragement to stop us from what? Doing the things of God. Doing the work of God. Nehemiah makes a real distinct connection between the two. He puts them together. You see what happens. Every time he prays, he then does something straight after. We prayed and then we got back to work. We prayed and we got back to work. We prayed and we carried on. We prayed and we kind of got ourselves some defenses because it was happening, but we kept working. We put defense in the middle of it. So what does that mean for us corporately and personally? I believe it means it might be obvious now if we're serious about the things of God. Expect opposition. Expect it. So it doesn't come as a surprise. Prepare for it and then know that God has given you the power of the word and the sword of prayer to deal with those things. Hand them over to God. This is not going to, this is stopping me from going, God, I'm putting it to you. Please, will you deal with this? Because I'm going to focus back on the things you've called me to. We're going to get opposed psychologically, practically and personally by an enemy who wants us discouraged. We need to expect it. We need to use the weapon of prayer. We need to do that corporately and personally as well. We're trying to move on. Opposition will come, but God's given this amazing ability through Jesus Christ to speak to him directly. Hallelujah. Praise God. You actually can just say to God, please, will you just take this away from not only practically, but from my mind so I can carry on with the things I've called you, you've called us to or me to. We don't have to lose heart. You may be one that feels like, yeah, I, just, I feel like voices have come to my head that said, who are you? Who are we? I've just lost heart for this stuff. That was opposition. Lost focus because of the pressures of life, financial and everything else. I can't. I'm too, I'm too worried about this. Opposition number two. Or maybe you feel like, I'll compromise myself. You know, I'm supposed to be a good Christian. But I'm doing, I've done this. And who am I? A sinner. Jesus' blood covers that. I'm trying to get you to feel like you're not good enough. Get you to compromise yourself. And then you think, well, I shouldn't have done that. So I'm out. That's opposition three. Let me end with the good news of Nehemiah. They build it. <laughs> they build it in 52 days. Faster than anyone thought was possible. Faster than they even planned against all odds because God's work will be completed. Hebrews 12. 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. And let us run the race with endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Against all odds, against every piece of opposition possible, even to be killed on a cross, God does this incredible work in Jesus Christ. He completes the job. He completes the work to give us an opportunity to be set free from the consequences of our sin in Jesus Christ. Let me just read that again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that which clings so closely, and let us run the race with endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. God will finish the work that he has started. He'll finish the work that he has begun in us in this church. He'll do it somehow, praying that we will be the ones that will complete it, continue to do the things that he wants us to do. God's put some amazing missionary missions inside this church, some amazing things to do. We're an amazing group of people when God is with us for what we can do to bless those around us. Amen? If God is with us, who can be against us? But there is someone against us. Just remember, but he is greater than he who is in the world. He has equipped us in every possible way to resist, to pray to him, to deal with these things. To and he will lay your burdens upon him and continue in the work that he's called us to and he's called you to.